Welcome to Super Thank on X-Ray FM. I had the greatest day of my life. Today was the best day of my life, and I need $25. What I didn't understand was he was being for me what I never had. I'm telling you, the relief that I got was one of the best feelings I ever had in my life. Prison is not a place to be vulnerable. And when we were there, these women, I mean, there was not a dry eye in the house. I just want to say thank you for taking me under your wing, um, showing me your city, and making me feel part of it. I love you. I'm Kara Hansen. Superthank invites folks from our community to tell stories about people they are grateful for. We just had our first live storytelling event at Beach Street Parlor in Northeast Portland. My friend Kristen Forbes is a freelance writer whose work has been featured in a wide variety of publications, including The Rumpus, Roll Reboot, and Brave on the Page, organ writers on craft and the creative life. But she hasn't always been willing to call herself a writer. I invited Kristen to Superthank to talk about how she came to own that title and the people who supported her along the way. Okay, so I am a writer, and I've always wanted to be a writer. And so basically what that means is that from a very young age, there were certain things that were just overrated to me. Things like being successful, and like having any sort of like financial security, or like any stability in my life like whatsoever. So I decided I'll let someone else do that, because my skill set is more geared towards like being a hermit and not making money and complaining a lot. Like that's kind of what I have to offer society. So that's kind of the approach that I took. And I think it was kind of a clear indicator when I was little and the other kids would say, you know, let's go play soccer. And I would say, or we could read a book and make our own language. And they would say, no, we're cool with the soccer thing. So I kind of knew that I always like to create stories and I like to slip into worlds through books. And I always wanted to write my own books. But I grew up in a small town, so I didn't know any other authors. I didn't know people who got paid to write. I didn't really even know people who had creative ambitions. So I just kind of floated along and tried to figure things out for myself. And I assumed if I read a lot, if I wrote a lot, it would all come together. So I went to college and I studied writing. And then I did that thing where I graduated and I was like, what now? And life was like, I don't know, maybe get a job. And so. I was very humbled, and I spent the first three or four years after college waiting tables and trying to get freelance work on the side. And it was very slow going, and I was getting little things out there, here and there, um, but I was really starting to think of myself as somewhat of a failure. And it got to the point where I dreaded the follow-up questions about my writing so much that I really just kind of stopped talking about it in public. It kind of became something I did on my own and that I didn't talk about. So then in 2007, my mom invited me to this really random luncheon that was a fundraiser for her college in Missouri. And it was this event where local authors came, they talked, they schlepped their books, they somehow raised money for the college. 
And so I went with her. And my mom and I ended up seated at the same table as a writer named Cheryl Strayed. And I think some of you today might know her as the author of Wild. So I decided right away that Cheryl was one of the sweetest people I'd ever met, and I immediately felt comfortable with her. And so for anyone who knows me, or if you can see me like on stage right now, I don't normally feel comfortable very often. So that was a big deal. So Cheryl started asking me about myself. And if it had been anyone else, I would have avoided talking about writing. But for some reason, I just laid it all out. And I said, you know, these are my goals. This is what I'm doing with my life right now. This is how lost I feel. This is how I wish things were going. And her response really surprised me because she looked at me and she said that she thought that I was doing exactly what I needed to be doing. So by waiting tables, by going after these freelance assignments, by reading like a mad woman, I was doing exactly what I needed to do to be a writer. So that was really the first conversation I ever had where I could look at my life decisions and not feel like a complete idiot. So that luncheon turned out to be the, the beginning of my friendship with Cheryl. And if I look at my life now, like I can't even explain to you how much of an impact she's had on me. So through the years, she supported me, she encouraged me, she helped me get into graduate school, she introduced me to people who have become my best friends, and she made it very clear to me that she believed in me. And I always had a really strong support system. I had great parents, teachers, friends, but Cheryl was the first person I knew who was doing exactly what I wanted to do, who told me, you can do this too, and you're not crazy for wanting to do this. And that's really made all the difference to me. And so now it's years later, and I'm basically in the same position where I'm not making a lot of money, and I have to make a lot of creative decisions in order to make my life as a writer. But I no longer look at my choices and feel like I've completely screwed up. And I'm finally able to look at what I've done and realize that I work really hard, and my version of success is probably always just going to look a little different. So when I got into grad school in 2009, I emailed Cheryl and I asked her if she had any advice for me. And she said, be open-hearted, open-minded, open-spirited, always in all things, in work and love and writing and life. Good things will come your way if you do this. So I try and follow this advice every day and she's right, so many good things have come my way, and none of them look the way that I imagined that they would look. And I know that I'll never be able to thank her enough, but it means a lot to me that she has given so much of herself to me. And I hope everyone is lucky enough to have someone like Cheryl Strayed in their life. Thank you. Kristen Forbes is a writer in Portland. You are listening to Super Thank on X-Ray FM. I am Ajane Bond. Super Thank is a group of people that gather in Portland to promote gratitude. Why? Because expressing gratitude in our lives makes us happy 
makes us healthy and strengthens community. Next up, we'll hear from my good friend who has been an inspiration to me, Samuel Thompson. Sam works with kids using entertainment and sports to draw them in. He's a comedian by nature and a community activist by heart. 20 years ago, um, no, in 1991, a 10-year-old boy walks into Vernon Elementary School, and this is his eighth school in his five years of being in, in school. And, um, you know, needless to say, a uh, typical story of a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of African-American uh, men in America right now. Never met his dad, um, you know, went through a whole lot of different things. And coming to school at 10 years old in a, in a brand new place, fifth grade, trying to start off, you know, was always being the new guy. So the kid had to learn how to be funny so he didn't get beat up. Because you go to school every year and, and, and you're the new guy. You know, people want to want to pick on you. So he had to learn how to play basketball and crack jokes. And while he was at school, man, he met a man. Uh, have you guys ever had a, a a moment when you see somebody and when you see them, it's something about them that is just unbelievable. They just have an aura about themselves. And um, seeing this man, and he wanted, he, the guy looked like Dick Gregory. Do you guys know who Dick Gregory is? He looked exactly like Dick Gregory. So the kid was tripping. He's like, man, is Dick Gregory at the school? This is amazing. <laughs> and so um, he sat there, and, you know, it's the first day of school. So he's playing by himself in the corner, and the man comes over and is like, how are you? My name is Dapo. And Dapo is a man that was from, um, he's from Nigeria, I believe, um, Oxford educated, graduated from Oxford. And for the first time in this young man's life, he sees uh, an African-American man who's a genius, like the, the smartest, smartest person he's ever seen. And so uh, he says, do you like to play basketball? And I'm like, yeah, I like to play basketball. So he's like, all right, every Tuesday and Thursday, we meet in the cafeteria first, and then we can go upstairs and play basketball. So gets us in there. We all go down into the into the cafeteria. We get there. He has brownies, and I tell you, they're the greatest brownies I've ever had in my life. So he's duping you. First he tells you you're going to play basketball, and he gets you brownies. So for the first hour and a half, we do nothing but sit there and go over math problems and reading. So I'm like, man, this is not what I signed up for. And so the man seen something in, in, in the boy and told him, you know, uh, you're, you're very intelligent. All you have to do is stay focused, stop cracking jokes in class, and you'll be all right. And so this is the time, man, where this young man met all his friends that he still has to this day, 23 years ago. And so um, this guy would take us over to Irvington. So he had two programs. One was at Vernon and one was at Irvington. And so this is about 14 boys per team, and he had a little bitty van. And I believe it was illegal, but we all got we all got into the van somehow, and he would take he would take everybody home. And so I lived on 22nd in Alberta, the original Alberta. I lived on 22nd in Alberta, and um, if you guys know, Vernon Elementary is two blocks away. He would drop me off last, and so I always wondered why are you driving by my house. What are you doing this for? And when we get in the car, we'll just talk. We talked about everything. We'll talk about, you know, what girl I thought ponytails looked nice at school. Just all kind of stuff. And so we would do that. And 
And what I didn't understand was he was being for me what I never had. You know, I, I never had any uncles. I didn't have any brothers. I didn't have uh, any of that. And so he was grooming me and at the same time vested interest into my life. And so this was the first time, like I said, I went to eight schools before the fifth grade. So my mom was from a very rare African-American gypsy tribe. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's what it was, but we always moved. And so um, it was actually an opportunity for me to to have a man who cares. And from that point, from 10 years old on, every year, you know, no matter where I was in America, because he continued to be a gypsy, and um, he would find me, and he would he would he would send me letters. He would he would talk to me. He would call me, and you know um, what he what he vested in me was a being of service to people. I believe that we're all here for a reason, and every person in here has a gift. And I think with children, it's figuring out what it is and and, and pulling that out of them. And so with him. He showed me that if you can merge athletics and education and community, you can change people's lives. And so um, I'm glad to say that, you know, 23 years later, um, I'm the founder of the Restore the Village Community Program. I'm the founder of Next Level Sports. Um, I actually have, I don't know how they gave me this job, but um, I'm a case manager for Monoma County Developmental Disabilities. I work uh, with children and actually, you know, from, from coming to a place of, I met my father for the first time at my graduation. And so, um, coming from that place and, and, and never having, uh, anybody around like that to be a success growing up, you know, in a community where, you know, your friends and your cousins were going to jail and dying and not ending up a statistic just because one person really cared. Um, is something that means the world to me. And so to this day, um, I try my best to use sports, entertainment, because I just figure if if you can get them interested and get them around you, they can be whatever they want to be. And so uh, right now, my program works with kids from four years old to 24 years old, you know, um, just helping young men get jobs and do all these things. And I, don't, I believe that if... My mom didn't make that pit stop on 22nd Alberta in 1991. Um, who knows what would have happened, but I am just very, very thankful for Dapo Sababahim. He's a fantastic, fantastic man. I seen him the other day at 24-hour fitness. He's about, Dapo has to be 191, maybe. <laughs> He's at least 100. And he was in there working out, and he doesn't, he doesn't wear a shirt when he works out, so... He's in there working out, and he's unbelievably buff, and it trips me out because, you know, I'm 32, and my body's already gone. But, you know, just with that, it was just showing that his determination, and when he sees you, he says, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, good to see you, Sam. And, you know, I just love his light, love the person that he is, and I just thank God that he allowed uh, me to be a part of his life and allowed me to do even 20% um, for the other, for, for, for boys like me, um, I actually have some young ladies in here that I worked with at self-enhancement for years, and now they are super fantastic. I'm going to probably get a loan from them pretty soon, but <laughs> I just want to thank you guys for the opportunity to get here and, 
you know, talk to you guys. And I'm very, very thankful for Dapo Sababahim. Thank you. Samuel Thompson told his story of gratitude in front of a live audience at Beach Street Parlor at our first live storytelling event. You are listening to Super Thank on X-Ray FM. Hello, my name is Brandon Ross. If you have a story of gratitude you'd like to share, we want to hear from you. You can call us at 503-610-0855 or email us at superthankers at gmail.com. Next up, Juvie Hall is a legal writer and a filmmaker. She's working on a documentary film series called Flat Track Around the World, where she explores the transformative power of roller derby. About 10 years ago, a local Portland woman put an ad in the newspaper, and she was looking for other women who liked to roller skate and drink beer. And I don't actually know what the ad said, and I don't exactly know why she placed the ad, but she got a few responses, and a random group of women started skating around in parking lots, smashing into each other and comparing bruises and kind of boozing it up a little bit. And they called themselves the Guns and Rollers. And thus began modern roller derby in Portland. And roller derby grew in Portland. And it soon became clear that something very special was happening. The women who participated found a really unexpected level of value in the the women that they met in the community that they were forming. And an unexpected love for this budding sport that they really were pioneering. And they told their friends and family about it. And women just flocked to the underground world of roller derby. Meanwhile, roller derby was also sprouting up in other places in the United States, in Texas and Colorado. And women started forming these little groups, little quirky groups of of people who just liked to play by their own rules. And the woman who founded Roller Derby in Portland, about a year after she started it here, met up with a bunch of these other women, and they founded the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. And thus was born modern roller derby on the national scale. Roller derby grew across the U.S. with leagues popping up almost everywhere, but it didn't just grow, it exploded and it spilled across borders and oceans. And from just a few little groups of women across a few states in the United States, roller derby has now grown to 1,300 leagues in over 40 countries. Something special seems to be happening everywhere. The phrase, roller derby saved my soul, can not only be heard in roller rinks and bars and after parties all across the U.S., but now all around the world. And it is a sentiment that I often reflect on with the deepest sense of wonder and gratitude, because Roller Derby didn't just save my soul when I started five years ago. (laughs) It continues to save my soul every day. I met a woman a few months ago in South Africa who summarized the power of Roller Derby in a really beautiful way. She said that in her experience, which has also been my experience, that the community of women that forms in roller derby and something about the sport really just magnifies everything about you. 
all of the good things and all of the bad things, and it forces you to take a hard look at yourself. And inevitably through that, you start to make better and truer choices for yourself and for your team and for your family and for your community. Derby keeps me mindful every day of my power to be, if you will, the change that I wish to see in the world. And I see that in my teammates and in my league mates, and I see them taking that to heart every day. And I know that we have built collectively stronger relationships and a stronger community for having gone through this experience. Thanks to Roller Derby, I've had the opportunity to travel fairly extensively now to other countries and to skate with women from over a dozen countries, um, everywhere from Mexico and Argentina and Chile and England and Sweden and New Zealand and South Africa. And I have learned firsthand that the power of roller derby has transcended more than just geographical boundaries, but it has also transcended cultural and social boundaries. Everywhere that women play this sport, they're actively empowering themselves to better deal with whatever challenges they face, be it racism or gender inequality or any other kind of intolerance. They're recognizing and capitalizing on their own power to affect change in their world. And all of this is due in large part, thanks in large part, to the decision of one woman, Kim Stegman, to be the change that she wished to see in her world. Over a decade of hard work and dedication, most of that donated by Kim, she has built the sport that has changed so many lives, not just here in Portland, not just here in the US, but in countries all around the world. She started with a scrappy group of guns and rollers, and then they added a second team, and then a third team, and then a fourth team, and then a training team, and then a junior league, and then two travel teams, and a recreational league. And now, 10 years later, Rose City Rollers is the biggest roller derby league in the world. We have over 400 active skaters. It's a nonprofit organization that's run by all of the women who participate in the sport. We have hundreds of volunteers and hundreds of sponsors. Our mission is to develop women of attitude, athleticism, and passion to play a hard-hitting sport of speed and skill. And the league's goals are to serve our community by empowering women and girls, providing entertainment for our fans, and supporting charitable causes. Every quarter, we partner with charitable organizations such as Big Brothers and Big Sisters. We help them raise funds and awareness. And uh, Kim also recently just got a grant from Nike to help the league build a gear library to bring roller derby, provide access to roller derby to at-risk youth. I honestly, I don't know what Kim had planned when she placed that ad 10 years ago, but I am deeply, deeply grateful for all that has come from it, both for myself, but also for the joy that I see in my league mates and my teammates in the women and the teens who I skate with, and also for the hope that I see spreading from league to league all around the world. So thank you, Kim, for saving our souls. Judy Hall skates with the Guns and Rollers in Portland.
The documentary she's working on is called Flat Track Around the World. You're listening to Super Thank on X-Ray FM. My name is Eric Klein. Super Thank invited a few people from the community to get together and tell stories about the organizations and individuals that they're grateful for. They were asked to get in front of a microphone and tell us a story about those who have done good things, often great things, not just for the storyteller, but also for the wider world. What you're hearing this hour are those live stories recorded upstairs at Beach Street Parlor in Northeast Portland in the early spring of 2014. Up next, my friend Crystal Aikens. <laughs> row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Everyone, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. In third grade, my music teacher, Miss Martin, had us sing this song. As we sang this song, she walked around the room, listening closely, crouching down, putting her ear close to our mouths. At the end of music class, Ms. Martin said, Crystal, I'd like to speak with you. I remember rolling my eyes and taking a big sigh because I thought I was in trouble again. As a kid, I was great at getting in trouble. I was a natural at being distracted, being distracting, daydreaming, and finding creative ways of using my abnormal amount of energy. Like the time I created an art installation with wet toilet paper and got suspended from the girls' bathroom. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I was very surprised when Miss Martin said, Crystal, I was listening to you, and you have a singing voice. She said she would like me to audition for her outside of school performance choir. Miss Martin handed me a yellow registration form and I remember when she placed that in my hand, I knew my life would change forever. <laughs> so after school that day I ran to my mom. Mom, 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 mom. I had the greatest day of my life. Today was the best day of my life and I need $25. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom wrote a check for $25 and signed me up for my very first choir. My first choir practice was life-changing. I was joyfully overwhelmed. I was surrounded by 80 other singers. I saw sheet music for the very first time. Lines, black dots, symbols everywhere. I heard harmony for the first time. I was in awe of the conductor's hands. As I listened to my singing voice blend with the other voices, I felt belonging, connection, love, and joy. That night, my mom picked me up from choir practice, and again, I told her, today was the best day of my life. I realized that for me, to live my best life, each day must have music. I believe that each person I meet holds a miracle inside them, and I'm grateful for the miracles I have been blessed with. Miss Martin was my first miracle. She listened to me and she heard me. The minute I started singing with the choir, I felt empowered and developed a deep desire to make music. My love for music and community led me to become a conductor and the founder of the Intergenerational Women's Choir. The torch has been passed on to me and now it's my turn to create a space for girls and women and for their voices to be heard. Today, I express my love and gratitude for the singers in the Intergenerational Women's Choir. Because of them, I am living my best life, and I have a community to sing with. Thank you. Thank you.
So Crystal Aikens thanked the members of her choir, but believe me, the gratitude in that group flows in both directions, which makes a whole lot of sense, of course. I knew Crystal would be a good person to invite to the Super Thank event because I made a radio documentary about her choir a few months ago. Sing out. Okay, feel the style. Connect with each other all the way across the room. It's about being together, okay? Here we go, one, two, three. We have um, girls and women who have lost their mothers. We have women who have never been able to have children. We have um, women who have never had the opportunity to meet their grandparents, their grandmothers. So it's a place where we all come together and we belong to each other and we can experience those type of relationships through the choir. It's just an opportunity you don't usually get. I mean, like, even in like school, it's like kids are divided into grades. You only get to really meet people who are like, maybe a year older or a year age difference from you. I really like singing with kids and um, retired women and elderly women and working women and I, I like the, the vast array of people here. I'm amazed with this whole choir and those darn kids know the music just like, I mean there's times when I'm, I'm observing their mouths because I'm getting the words from them on a new piece. So um, to see that this many children and adults and old people all get along, it's amazing. It's incredibly healing and it's hard to describe. It's not, I try to talk about the choir with people and explain what we do and why it's so meaningful and important and it's hard to find the words. It's, it's beyond what it looks like. It's beyond the singing. It's like the vibrational quality is super healing for our bodies physically and I think energetically for each other in the world. It's hard, I don't know how else to explain it. That was Anna Cohen, Muriel Henderson, Deborah Gitlitz, and Maeve O'Connor talking about singing with the Portland Intergenerational Women's Choir. My friend Stephanie Krasner is also a member of the choir and I invited her to speak at the Super Thank event. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Crystal. And Crystal's actually here tonight. And damn, I said, I wasn't going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Thank you. So Crystal uh, started the Intergenerational Women's Choir. And of course, I researched everything, and I looked her up. And apparently, there's a story that she went into a hospital, and there was a little girl in a coma, and she started singing, you know, probably the hills are alive or something, and the kid woke up, and um, that's Crystal. So I'm here to talk about the intergenerational choir that Crystal started, and it's all girls from 8 to 88, and it's a service choir, and Crystal said to us, the difference between a choir and a service choir is that in a regular choir, you all look at the conductor. And in a service choir, you look at the people you're singing to because we're about spreading love. And Crystal decided to get us into the prison, Coffee Creek Women's Prison. There's, there's one prison in Oregon for women. And uh, she got us there. And over half of the women at the prison are mothers. And her vision is to bring the girls and sing with their mothers. And she finally, after, I mean, you know, dealing with a bureaucracy, it's an uphill battle. But wherever she is, 
she just lights up and things move, things move. And I actually looked up what crystal means. And it's a highly transparent glass with a high refractive index. So Crystal, your mama, your mama <laughs> named you right. So we finally, last month, we got into the women's prison. And it was, I mean, it was the most moving and most powerful experience I have ever, I have ever been a part of. And we got in there and there was about 80 women and we came in and they came in and they sat down and a couple of the girls were joking with someone in the front and they mentioned that it was her birthday. And the choir all started singing happy birthday. And one of the women in the prison said, we're not allowed to do that because that's considered like you know, rabble rousing or something. And so already, that was like the, the, first, the first miracle. And I'm watching Orange is the New Black. I mean, I can <laughs> Prison is not a place to be vulnerable. And when we were there, these women, I mean, there was not a dry eye in the house. There's, there's two women in our choir, Connie and Anna, and they came up and they sang a duet. And everybody, everybody just started crying. And it was just like, that was another miracle. And then we have an accompanist, Amy, who she is a gift from God. I mean, she started, a little, she did a little um, segue and said, okay, I'm gonna play the black keys on my piano and I want three volunteers to come down and just play whatever they want. And it was the coolest thing to see these women come down and, and, and play and be vulnerable in front of each other. And you know, they talk about organic transformations. Those women, because of Crystal, they found freedom for that, that time period. And it was, that's not gonna be taken from them. And it was the most beautiful experience. And the following week when Crystal asked some of the people, because not everyone could, could get there, um, their experience of this, and some of the women didn't even wanna share it because it was such a, it was, almost, it was in, ineffable experience of being able to be there and bring joy to these women. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, what, what Crystal is doing, I, I mean, we're in this choir, there's women in their 80s who are singing. There's little girls finding themselves. And she just keeps spreading this. And I, I do have, I, mean, I know, oh. Grace of God there before. Oh, I do have to say there before the grace of God goes John Bradford. That's the actual, the real, the whole line. And it, you know, a lot of people say there before the grace of God. I think everyone experienced that when they were in the, in the prison. For these women to have lost their freedom. And the little side thing was that John Bradford ended up being burned at the stake anyway. So next time when you do say there before the grace of God, <laughs> He, he got, he, he was taken anyway. Um, no, I have to say, I, I'm a flutist. I was a flutist for 40 years, and I never, it was not my, I was forced. I was forced, it was like that or the clarinet. And when I came to Portland, 
I took a class at Transform Voice. So Linda Bryce, also a shout out to her, an amazing woman who helped me move through my, my rage and my anger and realize I'm not a flautist, I'm a musician. <laughs> and then I looked up, I put Voice, Portland, women, and it came up, intergenerational women's choir. So because of Crystal, I found my voice because she helped me find my song, my music, my heart, my light. She taught me to spread that light even in the darkest corners, especially in the darkest corners. She is highly transparent glass. The Dalai Lama says, do your work. You are of no help to anyone else if you don't do your work. You have helped me do my work. We can never obtain peace in the outer world until we make peace with ourselves. You've brought your light, you've touched me, you've touched everyone in this room, and you're gonna keep touching people with your light. And I really hope that that prison system is open to letting her bring in a choir so that mothers and daughters can sing together and not be afraid of the power that these women are gonna have when that happens. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Steph. <laughs> Stephanie Krasner sings with the Portland Intergenerational Women's Choir. If you want to hear more about the choir, you can listen to the full-length radio story that Eric made. It's up on his website, crowsnestradio.com. You're listening to Superthink Radio on X-Ray FM. I'm Paul Cohn. The voices you're hearing on the program today come from people we invited to share their story of gratitude at our first live storytelling event here in Portland. About halfway through that evening, we invited people in the audience to come up and share a story thanking someone in their life. And what happened was surprising. Each person addressed their gratitude to someone that was actually there in the room. This was a very important situation in my life. I was, uh, I was very tired one morning. I was asleep in my bed and... Uh, my cats were scratching on the door. Scratch, 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 scratch. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Scratch, scratch, scratch. It was annoying. <laughs> um, I had drunk a lot the night before, so I had a headache. And um, scratch, scratch, scratch. <laughs> they were hungry. I knew why they were doing it. It was just. Not something I wanted to deal with at six o'clock in the morning. And my lovely partner, Molly Ross, she got out of the bed, she opened the door, and she went downstairs and fed the cats. Thank you, Molly. <laughs> I was surprised when I came in and I saw one of my favorite teachers here um, and I haven't seen her since graduation and I don't think she understands um, the impact that she's had on me and other students around her. Um, she is a poet and she introduced, um, she started a open mic on Tuesdays and my younger sister uh, was 
uh, she, she convinced me to take her one day, and then after that, she um, looked forward to it every Tuesday, and that's how I would get her out the door. I was like, well, you got to go to school, because if you want to go to the open mic, you have to go to school first. Um, and uh, outside of her door, she had a Toni Morrison poster, and <laughs> after seeing that, I was convinced to read Toni Morrison, and I discovered a whole new genre of literature where um, I just felt like I could relate to characters um, whereas I couldn't before, really. And so thank you, Ms. Gomez. Um, and I hope I accidentally meet with you another time. <laughs> <laughs> Portland about two years ago and I didn't know a single soul when I moved here. I had an acquaintance and a connection and that was about it. Um, but I think fortunately uh, my one acquaintance had another acquaintance who needed a roommate. Uh, and so I found Stacy Crowley and uh, she took me in and quickly became like an older sister to me. She um, showed me all about the trifecta that's you know Williams and Alberta and Mississippi and this whole area up here. Um, she basically taught me the whole ropes in, in Portland and, you know, where to go shopping and where not to go shopping and, you know, when to, to dress up and when not to dress up and when to um, stay inside and watch silly TV shows and when to go out and have a really good time. And um, a couple weeks ago, I actually um, closed on a house and... Um, so that's a big step for me. I'm very excited about it, um, but I'm very sad to be moving out of Stacy's house. And um, so I just want to say thank you for taking me under your wing, um, showing me your city, and making me feel part of it. I love you. I'm a pretty miserable guy, you know? Like, I'm pretty quick to rain on a parade and I'm pretty quick to just start dumping on things because it's easier than actually trying to like enjoy something. And I just wanted to say thank you everybody that showed up because this has been a really like uplifting evening, you know? Like I'm not it's really hard to find anything to be optimistic about sometimes and hearing people actually talk about stuff that they're legitimately grateful for or moments in their lives that are legitimately powerful and interesting to the degree that everybody has this evening has been really, I mean, surreal ceases to be adequate. So again, thank you to everybody for being less unhappy than I am. Um, <laughs> that's it, thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks to Max, Hansel, Miko, and Blue for sharing their small story of gratitude with us at the open mic portion of Super Thanks First live storytelling events. If you have a story to share about a person who gave you an intangible gift and you want to show them gratitude, you can call us and leave a voicemail at 503-610-0855. Again, that's 503-610-0855. Or you can email us at stories at superthank.org. Next up on the program, Super Thanks' Anjanae Vaughn brings her friend Anthony up to the mic. 
So the next person um, I know very dearly, uh, he's been involved in my life. He's been at Self Enhancement for many of years now. Um, he's doing great things in our community and I would like for him to come up. His name is Anthony Deloney and you guys welcome. Good evening, everyone. Um, so the, I guess I had to get to this because it kind of goes all over the place. So uh, this story is roughly about 20 years ago. I was writing down notes. I'm like, man, I'm getting up there. But so 20 years ago, I was, um, I got convinced to volunteer for a camp um, that it was called Camp You Can Do. It's for uh, uh, put on by the American Cancer Society for uh, kids that have cancer and their siblings. So they get to go to this camp, all expenses paid uh, for them to experience this great time. And, and I think the best part about that is that they allow the siblings to come because they're dealing with a lot of the, the same things that, that the kids with cancer are going through. So, you know, I went out there and I'll be honest, I heard there's a lot of cute girls out there with the, with the staff, so I just got to keep it real. That, that is the ultimate reason that I went out there. But as soon as I get out there, I mean, I'm blown away by uh, the staff that's out there because you think about, you know, what kind of people take time out um, during the summer and really just go out there and experience, you know, and, and offer these kids the time of their lives. And, you know, one of the, the points that I remember during my, so I, I did this for three years, in my second year, the, the toughest part of the camp was when um, they have a ceremony and they, you know, you see kids that didn't make it back, right? And so that was always the toughest part of the camp. Um, but the people, the people, the people, kids are kids. I've worked with kids for a long time. Kids are kids, whether they're sick, whether they're healthy, they all need the same thing. They need to be loved. And it takes special people uh, to do that. So my story is about some of the people, well, it's about an individual, but during my time out there, you know, whether we're eating and the kids would go to sleep, you spend a lot of time uh, fellowshipping and talking to the folks and everything else, and you click up with people that, you know, that you just bond with. And there's, you know, a, a bunch of people out there that, I, that, that were really great to me. And so the, the key to all this is that y'all have a camp name. If you've ever been to camp, you know, so, so my, my camp name was Sugar, right? <laughs> so uh, long story, but they know, all my, Jefferson's back there, you know, that was my name in high school. Long story. Uh, but that was my handle. So when I got to camp, man, I'm sugar, right? So there's, you know, there's chaos, there's shakes, there's jingles, there's flash, there's all these people. And that's just what you call them, you know, real professional people. But, you know, that's just shakes over there. So uh, and there's Jaguar. And so me and Jaguar, Jaguar's got to be about, you know, 55, just older. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I, I don't know how old Jaguar was, but he was an older gentleman. <laughs> let me say that, right? A little bit older. He was older than me. Right. And just, you know, just hit it off right away. So, you know, there's a couple of guys my age in Jaguar. I would just sit up at the end of the night, uh, you know, till one, two, three in the morning, drinking beers, talking about sports, talking about baseball. And he really was just, you know, what we would call the big homie. Right. He just talked to us about what was going on in his world and all the things that he's done in his life. And really just 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 stuck he was like the the big homie the big uncle right so anyway so after my second year i'm i'm i'm, I'm finishing school i'm not ready to really work yet kind of the same story that i heard before uh so i joined americorps and so uh i don't know if you guys know but so so i was i don't know how they do it now but i was really poor when i was doing americorps and 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 when i talk about why i remember the stipend back then was i want to say $450 a month. Uh, I qualified for 120 bucks for food stamps. 
and uh, food stamps. Not nowadays they have the uh, the Oregon Trail. There was no Oregon Trail. It was food stamps. So the brown dollar bill, right? <laughs> Sam, don't act like you don't know what that is, right? So but I, I had food stamps, and so that's that's what I was doing. I remember my rent was 325 off top. So I was I had two roommates. They were, you know, they started working, so they had real jobs. And so, you know, I'm the broke one in the house. And so uh, it was a struggle. I, I, I remember I had this car. It was a Colt. It was a, it was a silver Colt that I bought for $600. When I was moving, I had a, a wicker chair uh, that I put in the back. I slammed the door. The, the, the back shattered, right, so the hatchback. So I didn't have any money to get that fixed, so I'm just rolling. I remember it was a snowstorm right back then, so I remember... The snow came in, and to drive it, I had to shovel out the stuff, right, just to, just to drive it. And I drove with a scarf and gloves on. That was just, that was, I was just getting it done. So anyway, so, so my, my spot with AmeriCorps was at Cascade Stream, which was right, um, we're, we're at the, like, the, I was outside. I didn't, so I'm from the city. It didn't do a lot of the fishing, and I, so they had to teach me so I could teach the kids how to, you know, about the life, salmon, and the fish, and up the stream, and all that good stuff, right? So I'm in the woods one day. I'll speed this up a little bit. And so I got hit in the mouth, right? And so, uh, you know, it didn't hurt right away, but then the next day, I'm starting to feel a little bit, and then the next day, I wake up and I have this giant, giant bubble forming, you know, right at the right in in the front tooth area, and it's pain. Is is I mean, it it is it is dreadful pain. So by Thursday, Friday, about Friday, I can't go to work. I have to I have to go to the dentist. So I told you I was poor on food stamps and everything else. I did not have uh, medical coverage or anything. The 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 insurance that they gave us was you know extra basic, extra nothing. So I I go to the county place that they send us to and I'm waiting I, I remember really waiting for three and a half hours in that lobby pain 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 I mean maybe by the second it's getting worse and so I finally get into the to the dentist and he takes one look at me and says you know I can't do anything with that you you, you there's nothing I can do I, in fact you need an endodontist and that you know that person doesn't come in till next Wednesday and so I remember like just being absolutely like like crushes like there's no way I can go with this pain through the weekend through Wednesday. I mean, I'm I'm just about in tears. And so I remember driving home and just something hit me said, uh, man, Jaguar is an endodontist. Jaguar, my guy, my guy Jaguar. So I'm like, man, well, shoot, I need to I need to find I need to call Jaguar. Only problem is I don't know Jaguar's real name. I know it's not. <laughs> I, I know it's not Jaguar, right? So I start going through all the homies and trying to find a man, you know, man, Jaguar, right? So we're trying to find it. So long story short, we finally find his real name. And uh, his name, and I, I, I had to look it up because he's still Jaguar to me. His name is Arden Overby. Just a strange name, Arden Overby. So I look him up, and I haven't talked to him since, you know, way back. And, and I call him up. I'm like, man, I, I, all I want you to do is take a look at it. I'm in so much pain. He's like, yeah, sugar, man, come on in. Come on, sugar, I got you. So I go out to, to Vancouver. And so, uh, man, so I pull up. I'm just in shock. I mean, it's, it's, it is a, it's the nicest dentist office I've ever been. I mean, it's leather everywhere. It's just real plush and nice. And I'm just sitting in the back like, man, this is, this is outstanding. So he comes out. He's like, sugar. I'm like, Jaguar, right? That's my guy. 
So he goes in the back, and so he's like, so so he he looks at my mouth and just goes, dang. So yeah, I I knew then that it was it was something. So he takes me back there, and so this whole time I checked in with the uh, with with the lady at the front, and so she's calling the insurance, and I can tell it's not going well. She's talking back. She's it's it's, it's just not going well. But I'm like, man, I'm in so much pain. Do this. So he goes back there. I remember this is kind of nasty, but he has these goggles on. So he goes in. He's like, you ready for this, sugar? I'm like, man, I'm I'm ready for this, right? Does something, boom, sploosh, right? Blood, I know, nasty. All I see on his goggles, and he's just like, whoa! He's so, you know, he's, in, he's impressed by what's going on and seeing his work, right? So he, he, so there was this little piece or something, and he put it in the jar, and I'm just, I mean, it's pure relief, right? I mean, it's just been building up for so long, and he's like, look what I took out of you, sugar. Look at this right here. So, I mean, he's clearly enjoying his work. I'm just, man, so excited that I don't have this pain anymore. And so now, you know, the reality starts coming in. It's like, man, again, I don't have insurance. I don't have any of this. And um, I, I, I hear the, the lady on the phone is not going. And, and he clear he hasn't said anything, but he clearly hears what's going on. And finally, I think he just sees us. He's like, man, he, he's, he hollers to the back. He's like, man, is, is that conversation about sugar? He's like, yeah, well, he's not. They're not covered. He said, and I got to, you know, blank this out if you need it. He said, man, sugar, sugar don't pay shit. <laughs> and so I'm telling you, the relief that I got from that was one of uh, the best feelings I ever had in my life. Because again, when, when I did the research, it was thousands and thousands of dollars of, of basically he just did oral surgery on me. I mean, never asked for anything. And I just think back to how I got in that place in the first places, you know, volunteering to help kids in need. I met this incredible person who was able to help me at a time of need, and I'll, I'll, I'll speed this up. Today, I've been working at self-enhancement uh, for 17 years. I uh, started almost immediately uh, after some of those incidents that just happened. But what he taught me uh, more than anything else is that, you know, we believe at SCI that, that all kids, all adults have a gift. And I just believe that if you don't use your gift and your talent for the people that need it most, then what's the point? And I think that that's one of the things that he taught me more than anything else. And I, I love to tell that story just about somebody able to help where he can help. And, and just kind of a side note, I heard he's not doing very well. And so my prayers go out to, to his family. Uh, but he's been an example for me and able to help some of the people even in this room. And I, I consider everything that I do part of his legacy because he's helped me uh, stay involved with my community and to help people where I can. Thank you. Thanks to Anthony Deloney for that story. And thanks to each of the individuals who shared their unique story of gratitude with us on today's program. Superthank made this show. Superthank is myself, Paul Cohn. I make sure everyone does their homework. Kara Hansen, who teaches us how to enunciate clearly. Michelle Jones, who cross-pollinated our communities. Eric Klein, who makes radio shows, and he made this one as well. Tim Marcroft, who made sure nothing fell through the cracks. Brandon Ross, who brought his family and made us smile. Michael Polod, who fights the good fight for us from the frozen north. Harai Kalsa, who makes us look good. Jefferson Smith brought us together, and Ajene Vaughn made the live event happen. The music for the show was composed by Portland's own Pottington Bear, online at pottingtonbear.com.